Hi everyone, I'm Wendy Muse, creator of the Left Pocket Project, which brings you the history of leftists of color, one swipe at a time. And this is the Left Pocket Project podcast. Before I get started with today's episode, I just want to remind everyone to, of course, follow us on social media by just checking out at Left POC, that's L-E-F-T-P-O-C, and also to make a donation of a dollar or more per month, if you can afford it, by going to our Patreon page, and that's patreon.com slash left POC. That allows us to keep things running in the background and also to donate to um, the organization of the choice of our guests, as well as to pay Richard and uh, our guests as well, because we have a unique uh, system here at Left POC where we actually remunerate our guests um, with a small amount uh, of money. We also support other podcasts, especially those that are smaller that have fewer than a thousand members um, or followers on Patreon, as well as giving back to the community ourselves. So please, if you can afford it, go to our Patreon page. Again, that's patreon.com slash leftpoc to donate a dollar or more. Oh, God, that's so hard to say. And I always mess it up during every single recording. So let me try again. A dollar or more. Try saying that 50 times fast. Anyway, a dollar or more per month to support us and to keep this show uh, running. By the way, there's a lot of noise in the background, so I apologize if this intro is a little bit uh, noisy itself, but you know, thumbs the break. Sometimes life happens and I can't tell the people outside my window to stop living because I'm recording a podcast. Anyway, <laughs> in this episode, we speak with Brett, the creator and host of Rad Reads, a YouTube channel where discussions of radical text take center stage. Brett is a black radical reader and booktuber based in the so-called Pacific Northwest. While their studies and content focuses on black radical traditions and revolutionary science, they enjoy reading a plethora of subjects and viewpoints. They make content that they find is lacking on platforms like YouTube, showcasing their own struggles and discoveries through developing political consciousness in the hopes that it will reach others in very similar places. Um, and I just want to say we had such a fun discussion with Brett. We really enjoyed talking to them about their work. Uh, so definitely check it out. And also, all of the books that are referenced within this discussion are in the show notes. So be sure to check out the show notes after you have a listen or while you're listening if you'd like to follow along and check some of those out online or buy them or download them to read. Also, um, just as one last two last reminders really quickly. First reminder is if you have trouble accessing any of the texts, especially if they're in book form, send me a DM either at leftpoc on Twitter or at newswendy and I'll see what I can do to get you copies of books, um, either digital or photocopies or physical copies um, if, if need be or if available if I have extras. Um, and then also the mask project is ongoing. Um, obviously COVID has not ended. <laughs> the pandemic is still raging and raging quite a bit in this country, despite few news stories on it. Um, so if you are in need of masks um, and specifically N95 masks and you're in financial need, uh, please, please, please send me a message that's at Muse Wendy, M-U-S-E-W-E-N-D-I. And uh, just let me know you need an N95 packet and I will put one in the mail for you. 
I send them out every Monday. Um, and I also, uh, you know, if you do have the funds and you'd like to donate to this project, feel free to ask me questions about that as well. Um, and if you can afford to buy your own masks, uh, but you don't really know where to go to buy reputable, legit N95s, ask me those questions as well. And I will help you out and direct you on where to go. Uh, so with that said, on with the show. Thank you so much for being with us here today. Uh, welcome to the show. And um, I want to talk to you a bit about your project, Rad Reads. So as you may know, as because you said you've admitted that you were a listener of the Left Pocket Project, right? Um, yeah. You have said that, or you know that we do um, a thing here called Reading Revolution, where we read and discuss um, texts that were written by or that inspired, um, you know, leftists of color. Uh, Black, Indigenous, and um, other leftists of color. And so one of the things that I thought was really cool about Rad Reads is that it's like Reading Revolution, but obviously predates us. And on top of that, you have a, it's like a video component. It's a video show that talks about these amazing, you know, revolutionary texts. So first off, like right off the bat, I would just love to hear a little bit about when you started Rad Reads, how it got started, um, and what kind of inspired you to do it. And also, if you could just tell us more about the program itself. Well, thank you for having me on. Very excited to be here. Um, Rad Reads was uh, something that had started just because I had stumbled across this thing called BookTube, which is a bookish community uh, in the corner of YouTube. And you know, I was looking up something else and I had accidentally come across it. And I thought that was really neat, you know, that there's like a whole community of people talking about what they're reading and being really creative about it, you know, making things like book tags, challenges. So I was like, oh, you know, that's neat. And I had noticed the more I was watching, I'm like, I don't see a lot of nonfiction on here. I feel like that would be kind of neat to incorporate that. So when I first started the channel, you can see this if you go into the early videos, which I do not recommend. But if you venture towards the back, I have <laughs> a lot of like different types of books than what I do now. So kind of what Rad Reads is today was is kind of a consequence of years of really honing in on it. So I wanted to add more nonfiction. And as I was reading, because I document my reading kind of in real time. Um, my political outlook really started to develop and become a bit more honed in. And so the channel kind of grows at the same time as I do. As my politics develop, so does kind of the trajectory of the channel. So they're very much in line in that way. And currently, you know, my goal with the channel is not only to do something for myself, but is also to kind of reach people who you know, otherwise wouldn't come across these kinds of politics, wouldn't come across these types of titles um, and make it as accessible as possible. So trying to talk to as many people as I can and make connections and just kind of get better at speaking and thinking through what I read. And one of the things you mentioned was BookTube. Um, I noticed that there's there's like a wide range of BookTube, but from what I have seen, it is a lot of fiction, as you said, but also it's really, really white um, and doesn't, <laughs> no, no, no hate against BookTube, but it seems to be fairly white and doesn't broach that many, like what we would consider 
you know, strictly political topics very often. And so I really appreciate your introduction and particularly, again, your focus not only on revolutionary texts, but seems like a lot of revolutionary texts written by um, authors of color and from around around the world, actually, not just located in the US, but from, from throughout the global South as well. Um, can you talk a bit about how you choose the texts and also what the response has been um, negative or positive from people that are your book to peers or people who normally consume this kind of um, book related YouTube shows? Yeah, so the process is I'm a very, what we call like a moody reader. You know, I read based on my mood, what I'm interested in currently. Um, and I happen to be kind of of a one track mind. So that's why we keep seeing, you know, the same thing over and over again, uh, thematically. Uh, so I'm always trying to find more texts from particularly Black revolutionaries. And when I talk about them, you know, it's been overwhelmingly positive, like alarmingly almost. <laughs> like, because a lot <laughs> of the booktube peers I have, you know, tend to be white liberals. And a lot of these texts are quite antithetical to that uh, and make it a point <laughs> to be antithetical. But a lot of people seem to be quite interested. And I think, I mean, it makes sense from their politics to me that this is very new to them. That they've never heard these things said this way, uh, had this kind of analysis or even seen this kind of political praxis before or even thought it was possible. Um, the negative response, <laughs> it's funny, the negative response is so minute that it's actually only been about one particular thing. And it was when I was talking about um, H. Rap Brown's memoir, his autobiography, uh, you know, and it has the N-word in it, and I've said it on my channel, but only in the context of saying the title. And I've had quite a few people say uh, comments about, why did you say that? Or you seem to have said that a little too easily for me. I'm like, girl, go somewhere. It's the name of the book. <laughs> <laughs> but that, thankfully, that seems to be it for the negative but most people seem to be very, very receptive, mm -hmm. which I'm, I'm glad for. So wait, just to clarify for people who are listening, right? Cause they may not be looking at you. We're going to put a picture of you, of course, but um, for people who are listening, do you identify as at least a person of color? You're not a white person, right? To clarify for the right. audience. <laughs> so, yeah, no, I, I'm black. Okay. <laughs> Jesus, <laughs> oh my God. Yeah, let's get that out of the way first. but it's great it's like weird because you have your image i mean it's a video so clearly you're like you're talking they can see that you're not like right or something but clearly you know like <laughs> and it's like i'm not using it so like i don't know be odd for me to say it in a derogatory way like that's literally the name of the text right right do you like, think that these people complaining are themselves white or like just trying oh, to be definitely. overly like pc or <laughs> definitely white because I'm like <laughs> okay uh please get away from me uh yeah. I mean it's just the name of the book yeah that's a little it. that's a little awkward um but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like do you see my face just checking yeah. <laughs> like hello yeah um but I, I guess my other question too just kind of as a follow-up to that is what do you think has been most challenging about doing this kind of content especially as I mean this may not influence or affect your work at all but I just feel like everything is kind of like like the walls are closing in a lot when it comes to 
cultural expression, discussions of history, um, especially mm. discussions of radical history, discussions of queer histories. Like there's so many sort of reactionary forces that are pressing in really hard. And most particularly around the issues in the, around the issue of books, right? We've been, we're talking mm -hmm. about book banning again. Um, so can you talk a little bit about that and kind of um, how do you, how do you see your work fitting into this, this moment? Um, and do you feel a, a personal threat in any way um, as someone who, who does this kind of work? Oh, the personal threat, definitely. You know, a lot of the material I have in here, uh, according to who we're talking to, could be, you know, bad news bears pretty quickly. But, you know, I do think that this, this type of work is extremely, extremely important. As you said, I mean, we're dealing with book banning again and this, you know, CRT hysteria. And there was recently an interview with Louis Alday, the head editor over at Liberated Text, uh, where they run a blog, a book reviewing blog on lost, underappreciated revolutionary texts. And he talks about, you know, books as weapons. You know, sure, our the digital age has certainly changed some of the ways that we access information, but books still remain, in his opinion and in mine, uh, a very important source uh, of political fervor, of consciousness development, and as proven by this insistence on banning books, I think that just proves the point, which I think only highlights how important it is to constantly read and to share what you're reading and to encourage others to. Absolutely. His work has been like really, I mean, it's been pivotal just to watch even the transformation of, of his politics too. Um, yes. How he uses Twitter, I think very effectively to to kind of put out a political message. I guess it kind of just carries on from your previous questions and I know you have a video about it as well, but I just w was hoping you could speak a little bit about uh, why the black radical history tradition uh, matters to you. It matters to me because, well, a various uh, myriad of reasons, but I think the most important reason is that I can see that, you know, what, what I'm striving for, what the collective we are striving for has been attempted before. That we're not having to re, we don't have to reinvent the wheel. We don't have to start from the absolute bottom. You know, there is precedent for what we are trying to achieve. And there are lessons that can be learned. And, you know, I think that it makes it all the more alarming at how hidden or destroyed or censored this history has been. Because I can only imagine what people could be capable of if they knew of this history. And, you know, I'm still learning a ton myself. And every time, you know, I pick up, especially, you know, something like Robin D.G. Kelly's Hammer and Ho, I was blown away. I really couldn't believe it at first. And then I got myself together and was like, yeah, of course this happened then. From what I know about the past, it all makes sense. So I think that's the most important thing. And it makes me think of like Walter Rodney's kind of insistence in how Europe underdeveloped Africa about, you know, Africans, Black people, you know, we need to learn that history isn't just thrust upon us, like how settlers or white people would like us to think. 
but that we are actual agents of history. We can make history happen where we can be the motive force. So those are kind of my two big reasons why Black radical history matters to me. Of the things that you've read, um, you know, you've done, like we were just talking about, talking about, you did a lot of, you've done a lot of Black radical history. And recently um, you did George Jackson's work. Um, you've talked about uh, Frantz Fanon. Um, you've talked about so many like pivotal um, Black thinkers in your work. And I'm just wondering of not necessarily just the Black ones, but like any books that you've read in recent years, what would you say um, was your favorite book to read versus perhaps if this is a difference, um, what was your favorite book to talk about of these and, and why? Uh, that's an awesome question. I think uh, uh, the book that can answer both of those is uh, Franz Fanon's Wretched of the Earth, also, James Yaki Sales' Meditations on Frantz Fanon's Wretched of the Earth. I had a really fun time last year going on uh, Marxist Paul's live stream to talk about both of those books. And I also had my own video talking about those two. Um, like, it's like a can of worms the second I bring that book up, those two books, because uh, that that text wretched was the hardest book for me to read i think so far like in since 2017 since i started this that has been the most challenging and yet the most rewarding text to work through and i'm still working on it i have a whole reread <laughs> eventually planned for that but i think it's one of the most gravely misunderstood texts but is also one of the most influential, like it's up there with the Communist Manifesto, if, if not even more, just because of how it just the ripple effect through the third world with that text, I don't think it can ever be overestimated. And when you say that it was difficult um, for you, do you think it's more about like the content or do you think it was just the phrasing, the language or both perhaps? I think it can be, yeah, a little bit of all those things. And one of the main factors that I've talked about in my video about this was the translation. So, you know, I think his name is Richard Philcox. He's well known for having done Wretched of the Earth uh, and Black Skin, White Masks. Uh, and his translations have been seen as like the seminal translation since I think 2014 or so, or maybe even earlier. But something about it just rubs me the wrong way because I read both those books but with his translation. And it was kind of like, I didn't even get the gist. I thought I did. But when I reread them in the original English translations, I believe Constance Farrington did Wretched and another guy did Black Skin, White Mask. It was like I read very, very different texts. I was like, what, what the hell did I read before then? <laughs> so I think the translation for me happened to be I think the biggest part but also just the content and the essence and I've heard so many people talk about wretched and at first when I read it I was like I feel like I'm not reading the same now I understand it and now I have even more opinions about it now that I can understand the text a bit better translation makes such a difference too like I I translate um 
I've worked as like a legal translator and then I've also um, engaged in book translations and whatnot. And it, it makes such a difference. Like I've, I've recently translated something that's kind of a seminal Brazilian text and the person who did the most popular um, translations of it in the U S it's just so wrong. Like it's, I mean, it's like, (laughs) it's so bad and it's frustrating because it's like of a very um, important black Brazilian woman. And part of me is like, Mm. I wonder sometimes, you know, like who, I don't know anything about the translators, but once you kind of look at the timing, like, oh, the fifties, 1960s, most likely it was someone who didn't necessarily speak Portuguese originally. Maybe they spoke Spanish and they were translating from the mm. Spanish version. Some of these people may be state agents, right? Cause at that time, especially the majority yeah. of the people who spoke multiple languages, right. were like working for the state department. So it's just, it's really fascinating um, when you revisit some of these texts and you see the if, especially if there's been more than one translation and if you can compare them over time mm-hmm. um versus the original like i i read french but i've never read Fanon in french i'd be curious to see how it stacks up to uh both translations actually that you mentioned because there's there's so much that can get lost in that process it's really frustrating oh um, absolutely yeah for sure um so I was also wondering, just like thinking further through Franz Fanon, because Franz Fanon himself is sort of like a, he's a complicated figure to say the least, um, especially mm. with regard to like what I've read, thinking about um, gender dynamics in his work and, mm. and how he kind of positions Black women versus Black men as colonial subjects and things like that. I was wondering if you could, and I don't want to spoil your your video. I will definitely post your video in the show notes so y'all can find that. Um, you can find Brent's video in the show notes and go watch it for yourself. Um, but I'm curious to, to for, for you to talk about maybe um, some of the things that you found perhaps thematically difficult or challenging um, as well. So not just the linguistic side, but also kind of working through the theory and the ideology that's presented. Um, what did you find most powerful or and or maybe um, most challenging for you to kind of like wrap your head around and, and embrace? I think the most challenging for me in Wretched, and this was clarified for me by reading James Yaki Sales' meditations on that text, was just how important uh, consciousness is to this whole revolutionary project or this kind of Fanonian sense of humanism, which is you know, to not model yourself after European modes of humanism, but to kind of transform and create a new human, you know, depart from this compartmentalized settler colonial regime completely abandon it and create a new. I think that was the hardest for me to grasp just because it's kind of, in Fanon's sense, it's the foundational piece to everything, to the, you know, armed struggle, to struggling with the national bourgeoisie through the national liberation process. Consciousness, it has to constantly be uh, tended to. And constantly has to be checked because as we can see through the history of just African independence, that particular era, if things go south really, really fast, it doesn't take a lot. But something I notice when people talk about wretched a lot, not everybody, but a lot of people, they talk a lot about that first section on violence. And while, yeah, I, I'm not disagreeing with 
any of the proponents in that section at all, I don't think it's the most important or the most pivotal part. Is it the most like exciting uh, piece? Is it kind of the most profound, revelatory? Possibly, but I don't think it's the most critical part. It's kind of like, you know, that, what is that, Mao, I think said that, that power comes out of the barrel of a gun. But I think what Fanon is also saying, and I think Mao would agree, is that, yeah, that power comes out of that barrel of the gun, but it matters who's wielding it. Do they know what they're doing? Do they know what they're, you know, fighting for? Because anybody can hold a gun. Just it kind of more depends on what they're using it for. Yeah, I think that's I think that's so important, especially to think about now as we're watching an ongoing pandemic and a lot of like really eerily reminiscent colonial practices come back into the fore um, mm. more than ever. Obviously, capitalism is like raging, um, but, yeah. you know, like in case anyone missed that one. But I think that there are also so many colonial practices in terms of the way we think about care and the way we frame whose lives matter and whose don't. Um, in, and especially, of course, most obviously, the way we deal with disease itself, um, and and who's on the front lines, and who's on who's dying at higher mm-hmm. rates, um, and why, and the way also that people are wielding disease itself as a weapon against marginalized peoples. Um, you know, it's just it's just kind of terrifying to think that we're like reliving a lot of stuff that we thought was maybe done in the 1600s or the 1700s and now we're back Mm. at it um like very (laughs) short period of time um yeah but anyway those are just like my my reflections on what you said but I think instead of some people are trying to hyper or not hyper fit but like superimpose a reality onto the current situation that doesn't quite fit and in doing that, that's how they're kind of rehashing a lot of these older practices instead of looking to this moment and saying, what could we do that's new? What could we, re- what could we not just recreate, but create, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the ways we think about, about disability, the ways we think about disease and illness, the ways we think about health, the ways we think about care um, and labor even, right? There are so many opportunities to, to reimagine, I keep saying re because I'm conditioned to that, right? I'm conditioned too. Uh, but so many ways that we could imagine something different. And instead we're being hit with a, like, no, let's, let's not do new. Let's go back um, mm-hmm. to a time that also wasn't settled, right? Like 2019 wasn't a happy time. And we talked about the time before, but pre-COVID was also not necessarily rosy um, by any means. Yeah. So I think going back to a quote unquote normal is defined on terms that are dehumanizing for many of us, um, and if not all of us, right? If we're thinking of ourselves as workers, as human beings, et cetera. So yeah, just kind of an, an interesting connection there. I was just kind of curious whether uh, you had come across any, talking about imagination, any fiction works that have Uh, I wish I could say so. I think the only one, the one author that really done that for me is Octavia Butler. I was starting her, I started Dawn. And while that's a much more bleak (laughs) text, uh, I do find her ability to kind of write these protagonists that even though they're met with like the shittiest of circumstances are so self-assured in the end of their ability to be rational and to 
do what they need to do to survive. Um, I thought that was quite revelatory. But outside of that, most of my fiction is like dude bro lit. And that's just the most regressive. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing good's happening over there. <laughs> Wait, what is dude bro lit? You have, you can't just drop that and not explain what that is. I'm not on book two, so I don't know what that means. What is dude bro lit? <laughs> dude bro lit is like, uh, you know, those guys you always run into and they're always like, you got to read this, you got to, and it's like infinite jest or it's like Bukowski, you know, they think it's, it's like the film bro equivalent, you know, when they talk about Pulp Fiction being this all-time greatest film of all time. And it's, you know, it's cool, but it's not, you know, it, you know, extremely earth-shattering. I just seem to like things written by grumpy white men because it's, it's an escape for me. I'm like, if that's all you ever have to worry about, okay, I mean, that's nice. I mean, Jesus. <laughs> That is hilarious, actually, because that was like of all the people to be escaping through. I guess picking like the most privileged kind of makes sense, but (laughs) it's just it's so banal, and you know, it's usually this. It's written by people who are so self-obsessed. You know, there's not a big cast, so it's easy for me to pay attention. (laughs) So then, would you have a fave of? Do you feel like there's maybe some dude brolet that like? was um somewhat revolutionary in some way or like kind of dovetails into what you have done that's more or have read that's more uh radical uh, or can be like, re- like read from below or something yeah <laughs> like i think one tax i mean this is a i should have stretched before making this reach but possibly <laughs> bukowski's um ooh probably his first two books in one of his series where it was his kind of alter ego. Uh, I think it's called Factotum. And it's just about being a post office worker. And it is really alienating. And he becomes, you know, an alcoholic as a consequence of it. And just kind of surfs through several jobs afterwards. And you can just feel kind of the misery that this guy is going through. Uh, The main character is kind of a piece of shit. But the conditions that he's living in are hardly survivable. Uh, you know, talking about soup kitchens and all that. But outside of that, most of my fiction is not really keyed in politically. And I'm trying to change that. You know, I got some Ursula K. Le Guin. I went and bought a shit ton of Octavia Butler types like that. But I mostly read nonfiction and talk about my nonfiction because the fiction I read is toast. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think that's fair. So you mentioned Ursula K. Le Guin um, and also Octavia Butler, who obviously, you know, are kind of like canonical texts or canonical authors in this area of fiction, but kind of um, highly dystopian fiction, but in some ways, imaginative fiction, thinking of a better world in some in some areas. Um, I'm I'm wondering what you think about that genre and how it tracks with revolutionary nonfiction. Um, and kind of, have you been able, because for me, sometimes when I watch things nowadays, especially that are dystopian, I would say after like the Black Lives Matter kind of awakening that we had mm. when it first started, actually not the most recent one in 2020, but like in, you know, 2012, 2011, yeah. the rumbling starting there. Um, it's been difficult for me to watch some dystopian films or read dystopian texts because it's like, 
too on the nose sometimes or like sometimes missing things like I can't handle Handmaid's Tale because I'm like oh you're just retelling <laughs> like black women's experiences from slavery but like wiping them from the the story you know what I mean um mm-hmm. so sometimes I have trouble like um having uh, being able to approach both both ideas at once right having and I used to love dystopian stuff so I'm wondering for you is it difficult for you sometimes or maybe not um to read these sort of things in tandem and how are you reconciling um if at all necessary some of those um striking differences or gaps in the text I think in general I think that you know fiction and nonfiction can be really really complementary uh, and I'm not no English major or anything like that. And so take what I say with a grain of salt. But I think <laughs> that, you know, I agree with Aruntati Roy, where she says, you know, fiction and nonfiction are just different modes of storytelling. So I think they can be compatible on the dystopian thing. Yeah, sometimes it can be a little too on the nose or it's just white people regurgitating things that have happened to colonized people but now it's really scary because it's happening to us like oh, well <laughs> yeah yeah cool story <laughs> uh but you know i think one author who i wish i mentioned in the beginning it always takes me a minute to get my wheels turning but i think one author who has really spoken to me and i may not be able to articulate it very well but is tony morrison I've been like slowly working through her stuff. Like I did, um, like No Name reached out to me back in 2020. And we, I did a pick for the month in August and I chose Toni Morrison's um, Playing in the Dark. Now that's nonfiction, but she talks about fictional works. It's kind of a work of literary criticism in a way. And after reading that, I was like, well, let me actually read some of her fiction. So I read like The Bluest Eye, which was her debut novel, and Sula, which uh, is quite contentious. Some people really love that one or they really, really don't like it. And so I've been really, with the fiction, you know, also trying to bring in the sci-fi girlies, but also people like Toni Morrison, Gloria Naylor. uh, And, you know, I think of what Toni Morrison said, I think it might have been on charlie rose's show um where she said you know she was really tired of being asked why does she write only about black people as if it's really derivative and pedestrian and mundane and she said something like you know the lives of black people are much more uh complex uh than kind of what the white imagination does you know it's quite limiting which as my discussion about reading Bukowski and like dude bro lit, it is quite limiting. You know, it's kind of like magnet poetry. You only get a set amount of words and you just rearrange them over and over. That's not the case when I read people like Naylor or Morrison. So I think all this to say is I think fiction and nonfiction be quite complementary. but just like anything, you got to read a lot of it and get through oftentimes a lot of junk before you find the gems. Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, there is, you're right. You have to read. You have to read, first of all. Everybody read, please. Like if you're, please, if you, <laughs> please read. We try, <laughs> we try to encourage people because I think there's a lot of stuff online that's like, um, 
someone reads and then it's kind of like telephone, you know? So like Mm. 20 people later, it's a completely different message. And you have someone saying that like, you can be a socialist who loves um, like Biden or something. There's all this (laughs) kind of weird (laughs) disconnected thing going on 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 left Twitter and left YouTube and whatnot. Um, (laughs) But yeah, I think you're, I think you're right. There is, there is a way to kind of recover, I guess, um, what fiction can offer us. And even the one that you said was dude bro lit. I mean, it sounds like there's a lot in that book about labor and labor rights, perhaps, and, you know, the doldrums of, of modern um, work environments and, and lack of rights for workers. You know, there, there's something that you can pull out of that that's also revolutionary in a lot of ways, perhaps. Um, so, yeah, I, I really appreciate that kind of thinking about multiple sides of of these different genres um, that sometimes are are um, poorly represented or or just like under under discussed. So much mm-hmm. appreciation for that. I, I guess one of the things that kind of came to mind while you while you you know, were talking was about uh, a lot of the texts that we engage in can be kind of heavy, you know, and kind of taxing just to like not just. Uh, you know, intellectually, but emotionally. And so I was wondering if uh, I noticed, can't help but notice the background full of books, if you had happened to have come across in all of your reading something that you found kind of more on the fun side. I know revolution can't Mm -hmm. always be fun or anything like that, but sometimes it would be nice to be able to find something, some sort of text that would be a little uh, lighter or like give some sort of kind of a, maybe a humorous spin or something along those lines. Ooh. I like that question. <laughs> I got to really think here for a moment because uh, it's a lot of tears <laughs> more than anything yeah. else. And it's, and it's, you know, I think it's good to have, you know, a sense of humor. Um, you know, I'm looking around right now. <laughs> yeah, I no think, need to put you on the spot. Oh, you're fine. I think you know, this book is still not the lightest, but I think especially Black readers will really resonate with H. Rap Brown's autobiography um, because, you know, it's kind of uh, a mix of autobiography, polemic, venting. It also has some interesting art collages in it. And I just think the way he kind of talks about the man or Whitey or whatever, I think a lot of people would really get that. And, you know, I think it does kind of take some of the edge off of, of just like right. the subject matter. But, you know, I'm sure there are <laughs> uh, texts that are a bit more lighthearted, but... I think I'm probably not the best person to ask in that department, unfortunately. Oh, no worries. I just, uh, it's uh, like I mentioned, like you say, it's, it's, it's heavy stuff and the content is in the context is always going to be heavy. But like you mentioned with the H wrap around, I think that's a great point. It's just like, just those little twists of uh, rhetorics that can like, just give you some relief within the text. Right. You know, that's, that's, I think, reasonable and i don't expect much more than that so that's very much appreciated yeah and i think too like kind of gone on that note you know there is a lot of humor believe it or not in like anti-colonial texts not just books but like like um 
pamphlets or sometimes poetry and things like that, because mm. sort of in line with what you said already, Brent, about who's the kind of um, who's the subject receiving the barbs. Right. And usually it's the colonizer. Um, I feel like there's a lot of humor in and in, in caricaturing. Uh, the colonizer as well in these texts um, but for the I mean it's it's obvious because it's, it's a political text right so they're trying to like catch people's attention and part of that is by making and I think rightfully so um, the colonizers look like complete fools um, and fools who are who are getting lucky in some areas in terms of the resources they're able to grab and whatnot but kind of showing them as completely inept um, and, and not capable of managing things because they're not from there. They don't know what they're doing. They don't know the language, kind of just bumbling around, even though they're obviously simultaneously engaging in, in wild acts of violence um, and, and to a large degree and large scale, much greater than anything that most people had seen when it was happening. Um, yeah. It has to be released somewhere, right? And I think that's how they find it. And that makes me think of... Uh... Now, now that I got the wheels going, is uh, M.A. Césaire's discourse on colonialism. Oh my, he just mm. went through for the throat in that book. He really did. He didn't give anybody a breath of air at all. You know, it's a very serious book, but he definitely <laughs> has some very interesting turns of phrase. I can only imagine the severity of those insults in his in French. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh, right. <laughs> It's on our, you know, and it's funny because like we, Richard and I have both talked about this book. I've tweeted about this book. Emma Césaire was one of the like left POC of the week for left for left POC, the Twitter mm. um, page. And I have yet, let's, let's do this right now. Like penciling in <laughs> must <laughs> add, because it's a short book too. It's like, so, and it's very clear and accessible and like easy to understand. Um, so we, def we definitely should do, um, a reading revolution on on discourse on colonialism but i agree there are definitely some parts and also when he's talking about like um some french leftists and like european mm. leftists in general just being kind of a hot mess um there's definitely some funny point there are funny points in that book for sure mm -hmm. um that's a good one so kind of on that note um i i know that you mentioned earlier brent that you had found yourself also changing kind of ideologically as you read these texts and i would say and i know richard would agree with me on this that like the same thing has happened to us um as we've we've read many texts revolutionary texts on our own or for the podcast um and for me like through school and things like that that have really radicalized us um in profound ways and made us think about the world and our own politics in really different ways. So I wondered if you could talk a bit about that for us and what that transformation was like for you. Um, and if perhaps there were some books or texts along the way that you found the most um, pivotal or like kind of groundbreaking for you and your political trajectory. Yeah, and it's been, uh, talk about an ongoing process. And I would love to add that uh, it will certainly, for all of us, be a lifetime endeavor. But the most kind of, the biggest ruptures happened through 2017 to, I want to say till now. You know, I kind of started just kind of being disgruntled with the Democratic Party. So, you know, the Bernie deal, the kind of socialist Democrat kind of deal. And then, you know, I got really into reading a lot of Chomsky because he's quite accessible in that way, for better or for worse. So kind of was very interested in anarchism for a little bit.
but I think the biggest kind of pivot um, was reading, uh, one of the biggest pivots was reading J. Mufawad Paul's Continuity and Rupture Philosophy in the Maoist terrain. You know, I'd heard a lot about Maoism, but I didn't really know what it was. And this also is not like the best book <laughs> to understand what Maoism is exactly. Um, but he's talking a lot about how, you know, Marxism, Leninism, Maoism emerged as a theoretical terrain, not after the Cultural Revolution in China, but rather after, you know, some people's wars that had happened in the third world most notably like Nepal and Peru and going through the RIM sequence, the revolutionary international movement. So I found that pretty uh, earth shattering for me. Never had heard of looking at the development of Marxism as like a, a series of continuities and ruptures, kind of like a staircase, right? It's all one thing but there are breaks within it that go up and down. So pretty much all of JMP's books, but also reading people like Walter Rodney, Fanon, um, looking around now, um, Harry Haywood, the Black Bolshevik. Um, and now currently, you know, Gerald Horn, been working through his Settler Colonialism trilogy, it's really kind of helped me kind of coalesce uh, a type of framework that I have, which is sympathetic towards Marxism, Leninism, Maoism, as well as kind of new African uh, independence movements or new African revolutionary science. So that, that those kinds of frameworks and those texts, uh, just a few <laughs> have really shaped where I'm at currently. Um, on that note, because I know that on your Twitter bio, you have an AIM, which I know you just you just spelled out for us. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Um, because that sounds really fascinating and something that I'm interested in learning more about as well. Um, and how, if at all, does it differ from what we traditionally think of as Pan-Africanism? Um, and how does it kind of go with um, Marxist, Leninist, Maoism? Um, how do those things overlap? Yeah, so the new African independence movement um, is a bit different from Pan-Africanism. And for anybody listening who's interested in Pan-Africanism, I recommend that you read Pan-Africanism, an introduction by Hakeem Adi. And in that text, he kind of breaks down that Pan-Africanism is not like something that can be kind of narrowed down into one definition. It does kind of depend on where you're reading about Pan-Africanism. So is it in the Caribbean? Is it in the US? Is it in Africa itself, the time, the era? But in general, I likened, uh, you know, Kwame Ture's kind of definition that Pan-Africanism is a political objective. And that is the unification of the continent um, and a unification of Africans at home and it in the diaspora as well. So connecting people and the continent with a revolutionary political trajectory, right? 
But new African independence, that's specific to the so-called U.S., right? And the reason why the term new African is used is that, well, Africans were stolen from their homeland and brought over here. So they're geographically removed and also removed socially from their cultures and their backgrounds. And coming here and being forced (laughs) to be slaves here cultivated a new kind of identity, a new kind of outlook uh, of liberation, freedom, what have you, hence this term of new African and spelled with a K, I think is also as a way to signal a difference. So, you know, and there's a great paper and I should send the information on that so it can be in your show notes uh, that kind of breaks down exactly, you know, what what is the history of the new African independence movement and its fight for liberation within the U.S.? Um, And so that's where, you know, when we look at the history of Black struggle in the U.S., there are some people who see this as part of that new African independence movement. So things like slave revolts, um, the kind of unfinished revolutionary project of reconstruction and the counterinsurgency and the resubjugation of new Africans that would ensue afterwards. Also, you know, in a way, I guess, this is where things kind of start to get hairy because of loaded terminology. But we see things like in the Jim Crow South, you know, civil rights, how that would kind of get wrapped up into other things, Black power. So there's a particular kind of perspective in understanding what these struggles and revolts were about and what they were for. Um, and a text to, that I just, just finished that people might be interested in is Edward Onassis' Free the Land, which is a history of the Republic of New Africa. So this building of a Black nation state would come much later, but new, the, the fight of New Africans predates it, you know, several, several decades. Um, so it's different from pan-Africanism. I don't think they could, they, I don't think that they are diametrically opposed, but I do think that they have very um, distinct political concerns and objectives. But I don't think that they're antagonistic. I just think they kind of have certain business in order that isn't uh, completely aligned. Yeah, that's fair. It reminds me of... Um... Not, I don't want to call it a debate, but it's more like two um, theories that often are in um, discussion, more or less, in the study of African diaspora, which is this idea of roots versus routes. Um, mm. And roots theory theorization often focuses on like what we got from Africa in that process of diaspora, right, of being removed from our homeland and what we were holding on to, what practices and, you know, cultural engagement, language, all of that, that were kind of recreated, um, you know, in, in some ways, you know, supplanted, you know, started anew, but very much connected to the roots, right, um, in the quote-unquote new world for Africans, but then also um, the routes 
discussion, which focuses more on what changed in the process of motion, right? What, what um, evolved, not just from Africa, but in the process of intermixing with all these other cultures through colonialism and enslavement and the like, um, and how it was the travel, it was the removal that allowed us to kind of create something new in the, mm-hmm. these new spaces. And so it's, it's really interesting to think about that. Um, in, in, to me, what sounds like you're explaining is kind of playing out in a political way. And it also reminds me of, it's all, you know, not trying to open up a can of worms here, but it's like a, for me, what would be a more favorable version of ADOS? The problem, Mm. like no offense to ADOS people, although y'all certainly (laughs) often work to offend us, um, but you know, the problem for me, I think fundamental problem with ADOS is that it's so strictly tied to the US in a way that it like reifies capitalism and reifies the US Mm. system um, and, and discards all connections to Africa um, or Africa itself in the present. Whereas what you're describing sounds more like an acknowledgement of Africa, a recognition of those roots, and yet also an acknowledgement of what was different about being, you know, removed from that land and placed in the U.S. under these really, under duress, right? Um, Mm -hmm. And not only acknowledging the trauma that that caused, but the new and revolutionary acts that were engaged in in the Americas to fight back against capitalism, to fight back against, you know, colonialism and things like that. So I think it sounds like a really interesting um, movement and something that I'd be really, you know, fascinated in learning more about. So thank you for sharing that. Um, yes. I, I hope that assessment was fair. <laughs> oh, yeah. And if I may add uh, one more thing about it, you know, mm-hmm. uh, two particular thinkers come to mind when I'm learning about, you know, new African politics, new African revolutionary uh, perspectives is Senyika Shakur, the late, great Senyika Shakur, as well as the late, great James Yaki Sales. And you know, they actually had met before. And, you know, Sinika wrote the blurb for Meditations. Um, and so Sinika's text, Stand Up, Struggle Forward, New African Revolutionary Writings on Nation, Class, and Patriarchy, extremely highly recommended, as well as, and you can find this on Freedom Archives, uh, James Yaki Sales, who was under the name Atiba Shana, He had written 11 or 12 journals called Notes from a New African POW Journal, which originally started out just him writing and then several others would start contributing like an actual journal. And that's where I've learned a lot of this material and I'm still learning it. So that's why I always tell people on the channel, now don't take my word for it. Please go read the book because I can't relay this as well as I would like. And that's what the books are for. (laughs) On that note, uh, that people put a lot of effort into making those books and there's a reason like they go through lots of editing and like refinement. And so there's a reason. And so I, I, as someone who struggles to read, I also remind myself constantly that it's, it's very important. There's lots of uh, critical information that is very well articulated uh, when you have the length and the depth of a book. But I guess one of the questions that I had is that, Engaging in all of this uh, theory and these texts, uh, a lot of it kind of matches, for me, I know, and I know for many people, it it, uh, matches their experiences and it kind of explains things in a way that makes them easier to understand and to kind of reconcile with 
their experiences, uh, the, the theory with their experiences. I was wondering if you had uh, any particular uh, texts or moments or ideas that you came across in your kind of evolution and growing that you had that you struggled with that was challenging to existing pre-existing ideas that you had and that you had to kind of struggle through I think um because man that could be so many books I think one I'll mention is one I mentioned before which was uh Jay Mufawad Paul's continuity and rupture it's one of his last chapters in the text but he kind of breaks down why he thinks you know, Maoism as a political and philosophical terrain can handle a lot of contemporary questions that a lot of academic disciplines claim they can analyze. So for instance, you know, he talks about, you know, some of these respected scholars that he kind of calls like rebel scholars. So people like Judith Butler, Edward Said, Foucault, da, 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 kind of breaks down, you know, it's not saying don't read them or they have nothing to contribute, but they are anti-Marxist or at least have sentiments that are antithetical to kind of Marxist conceptions of history, politics, whatever. And he also gets into kind of uh, critiquing things like identity politics, uh, certain uh, I can't think of all the terms now, but things that you would commonly hear in like a women's studies, maybe sociology, a lot of that humanity stuff. And uh, that was like really hard for me because, you know, my background is I never finished school, but I studied political science as well as sociology and women's studies. So he's like coming for things that I like held in a very kind of coveted position. And I was like, mm -hmm. well, geez, <laughs> take a chill pill. But the more I really sat with it and read it and also listened to his interviews, it, he wasn't critiquing these like a reactionary would and certainly not with like a reactionary retort, but saying rather these have very grave shortcomings and they can't compensate for all the things that they are missing, such as these are often like frames or lenses to analyze or see something, but they don't have any solution they don't have any other proposition for an alternative like all they're really good at is pointing out x y and z but not how to bring about abc so that was particularly <laughs> challenging mm. for me and kind of realizing some of the things i had learned in school were this uh not to sound like fucking jordan peterson or anything but these kind of postmodernist kind of understandings of contemporary problems um were lacking to put it very very kindly and so i'm very grateful for him to have written that especially i think if somebody were if you were to like to tweet that i feel like a lot of people would be uh up in arms and it's very easy to kind of mm -hmm. get lost in that and not really you're, you're people aren't listening to understand or listening to respond and that's something i had to learn how to do with his texts and many other people's works too I think that's an excellent point. And identity is definitely one of the uh, heavily co-opted kind of concepts yes. that that's helped the Columbia uh, Collective and River Collective mm -hmm. and others have done a lot of work. And it was just essentially hijacked by a liberal movement yep. and and very reductive. And like, but like as you say, it's also very prolific for people 
who want to find some sort of sanctuary in the U.S. political space that that seems to be the only safe place. So it gets very ingrained into people. And so like that's definitely something I think is very challenging for a lot of folks. So I'm very thankful for you sharing that. Yeah. So I'm going to switch gears totally, y'all. You're going to get mad at me, but this is my <laughs> final question. Um, thank you so much, obviously, for having been with us. It was great speaking with you. Um, and I will, for anyone listening, by the way, all of the texts that they just mentioned, um, through, not just mentioned, but throughout this interview, we will post in the show notes. So everyone will have access to everything that Brent talked about um, throughout our talk. But my last question for Brent is, what is the deal with Doja Cat? You got to tell us about your Doja Cat appreciation. I noticed that <laughs> she's running through your images on your Twitter page. Um, you often use like, images of her or gifts or whatever. So I'd be curious to know, what are your thoughts on Doja Cat? And does she have revolutionary potential? Because she's a little problematic, but maybe there's something about her that I don't know that you could tell us. I'm fucking crying. Oh my god. I I okay, I don't know if Doja Cat has revolutionary potential from the looks of it. Probably not. Uh unfortunately. But I will say she's just one of the girlies. Like she can make bops, she can sing, she can rap. Um, I like her sense of humor. And as you can tell, great reaction image material. Mm-hmm. I mean, she's already got it all in the performance aspect, but now I got reaction images. Yeah, I'm just a big Doja stan. Um, <laughs> I try to like, because I'm like a big stan of her and like Megan Thee Stallion and all this, but I'm like, this is like, <laughs> I, I'm sometimes really uh, anal about what I post uh, being in line with kind of what people expect of me because, you know, they follow me, they expect politics. But instead, they're just seeing me spiral on online. And so I'm like, oh, sorry about that. Um, you know, but yeah, uh, big Doja Cat stan. Um, I'm always listening to her stuff, especially after this whole conversation about how bleak, you know, everything I read. Sometimes I just need like five minutes to turn this little squirrel brain off. And she's great for that. I think that's totally fair. I, I, so Richard knows this about me, but I have an, a, a unique love for Real Housewives um, oh and other like trash reality TV. I really need, I want to have like a, a left POC episode where we talk about, you know, like the, the guilty pleasures of reality TV and like pop music <laughs> and things like that. Cause we talk about such serious topics on here often. Uh, so one day I will have a kind of a, a junk food version of culture discussions <laughs> <laughs> and we would love to have you back for that considering your love of pop music or at least the being a stand particularly of uh people like Doja Cat and Megan the Stallion um oh yeah that would be an awesome episode so we'll keep we'll put a, put a flag by your name Brent um and we'll be sure to have you <laughs> yeah. back when if and when that happens there may be like a maybe as a as a hot girl summer um, of sorts i will have a (laughs) a series on um hot girlies in the music and reality tv show business and have back some of my favorite uh guests to talk about their take on these issues and more we'll see about that uh but i'll keep you posted either way um (laughs) but thank you so much for being with us it was great talking to you and for those of of uh, our listeners who are not already familiar with you, where's the best place where they can access your content? 
So I am on YouTube at Rad Reads. I am on IG, Instagram at Rad Reads 94. And on Twitter, I am Rad Reads B. And all these are one word. And I'm sure you can hunt me down on Goodreads. I keep my links for that also on my YouTube page and my about section. Awesome. So definitely check Brent's stuff out. Check out Rad Reads at all of those locations online. Really great work that you put out. And I'm so appreciative of all, as always, of people who really sit down with the works, wrestle with the works that they're reading and are willing to talk about it in such a public way. I think that's super important because I think sometimes people are embarrassed or they're afraid to kind of be in the process of learning in public, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and doing that and being really transparent in that process and especially doing it from a left perspective, a radical left perspective in particular, is so important. We need more of you and less of the, you know, um, Governor DeSantis types who are like locking yeah. down access to books as we speak. Um, so I really, really appreciate you being here. Thank you so much. And everyone definitely check out Brent's work uh, online. Thank you again. And thank you for listening to The Left Pocket Project. Of course, we will be back soon, hopefully, with new episodes. Um, But in the meantime, feel free to check us out on social media. And that's at LeftBOC. And of course, on our Patreon page, where everything is free and open to the public, but where you can donate a dollar or more per month to help keep things afloat uh, via patreon.com slash LeftPOC. Thanks so much, everyone, and have a good one.